The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, We are continuing in our series called Never Better, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. Uh, As I said last week, you know, coming up to chapter 10, there's been um, a strong argument made by the author that Jesus is superior and his priesthood is superior and the new covenant is superior. And, And kind of the overall theme of the book is that Jesus is better. Uh, and, and the gospel is better than any other. Jesus is better than anything or anyone else we'd be tempted to worship. The gospel is better than any other attempt we would try on our own to uh, be in right relationship with God. And so the superiority of, of Christ and his covenant is in direct focus. And um, there's, a, there's been a lot of kind of laying out and, and argumentation very methodically up till now. And then the second half of chapter 10 marks a bit of a pivot towards application. And then here in, in chapter 11, for many of you that have been around Bible things for any amount of time, you probably are, are aware of this. It's a fairly famous chapter, uh, oftentimes called the Hall of Faith, uh, where the author is now going to uh, make an argument for maybe what I would say is the subheading of this book, which is that salvation and relationship with God has always been based on faith. And so if, if a Hebrew Christian that was tempted to move back into the forms of Judaism and, and put hope in that for salvation, if they're you know, maybe not tracking so far with what this guy's talking about, why, why is he saying it's always been about faith and why God requires faith, now he's going to go kind of just starting from Genesis, moving forward, talking about how it has always been, it has been by faith that people have been in right relationship with God, that they have been seen as righteousness, that they have had any chance whatsoever of pleasing God has always been by faith. And so that's what we move into today. Uh, We're going to take verses uh, 1 through 19 together. So I hope that you're there. Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible or a way to follow along, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please give us the chance to give you one. We'd really like to do that. We want everybody to have a Bible that wants one. Okay. Hebrews 11, starting in verse one. Here we go. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even one man, even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise, promises was, offered up, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Praise God for his word. Woo-wee. All right. Verse 1, you ready? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is sometimes referred to as a definition of faith. It's, it's probably better understood as a description of what faith does and how it works. Okay? A definition of biblical faith would be something along the lines of confident trust in and obedience to God and his word. Okay? That would, and that's going to come up more as we keep working through this. So I'll say that again. Confident trust in and obedience to God and his word. That would be probably closer to a biblical definition of faith. What we see here in verse 1 is more like a description. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what that means becomes a little clearer as we keep moving. Verse 2, for by it the men of old gained approval. Now I know some of your translations will say a good testimony. Men of old gained a good testimony. Now as we said last week and I already alluded to in the introduction, a major theme of the book of Hebrews is that relationship with God has always been by faith. You might say, okay man, I know you said it. But look at the repetition here in chapter 11. Look at how much we need help to be convinced of this incredibly profound, deep truth that is, if we're honest, hard to understand. We need help with it. Uh, if biblical faith is confident trust in and obedience to God's word, we can see that it was a lack of faith that caused our first parents to sin against God. What do I mean? Confident trust and obedience to God's word. What, what was it that our first parents, first they, Satan came casting doubt about what God actually said, and then cast doubt about whether what he said was true. So what they were lacking was confident trust and obedience to God and his word. And if that's the case, if a lack of faith is really what it came down to when our first parents sinned against God, it perhaps helps us to understand why it is by faith in God's word regarding Christ and his gospel, those are the means by which relationship is restored. I think for sometimes it's people, it's, it's confusing. What, why, why is it all, why is it by faith? Is this some arbitrary thing that God just came up with? Is it something too deep for us to understand? And I, I think at one level it is something too deep for us to understand, for, for sure. But also to, to go back to the garden and see where the problem started with a lack of faith, to understand that what God now requires of us is faith, for the restoration of that relationship, it, it, it makes a little more sense, maybe, understanding it in those terms. Verse 2, it says approval. Um, and, and as I said, some of your translations say good testimony. And, and I think that's, uh, approval is probably the more technically, like, word-for-word -word way to say it. But a good testimony is not wrong. It's, and it, it may even be helpful. I want you to kind of hold that. Put a pin in that idea that, that it is... By faith, men of old gained approval, okay? Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the words of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Here's, here's the thing. Faith, sometimes we think this is the case and, and it's not. Faith is not blind hopefulness or optimism with a total lack of regard for evidence or reason. That's not what faith is. And, and sometimes people that mock faith think that's what it is, but they're not, they're not even mocking what the Bible is actually presenting. And what it's calling us to is as people of God. God made us in his image as intelligent and reasoning creatures and expects us to apply those things to understand the true nature of reality. The true nature of reality being he is God and he did make all things and is thus worthy of our obedience and our worship and our allegiance. 
And th- this idea is, is maybe clearly seen in the fact that the author now calls our attention to creation, right? What does he say? By faith, we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This idea of things being, not being made out of things which are visible, this, this is, is a nod to the idea that in the beginning you have God, and that's it. And then he begins to speak. He says, let there be light. There, there, was, there was nothing, and then there was something, and it was by the will and the word of God that that change happened. The, the, the kind of fancy term for that is ex nihilo, out of nothing. God made everything. And this is a point worth considering when you're thinking about these things. And what, did, what does that lead to? Well, I mean, it, it puts God on a different plane than us. We, as image bearers of God, have the ability for creativity. We can, we can make things. We can make some awesome things. We also make some very dumb things. But we make things, don't we? But anything we make is because we're taking visible things. We're taking things that already exist, and we're ordering them and assembling them in different configurations, and then we can come up with all of our cool inventions or whatever it is we're doing, right? That's not what God did. Out of nothing, God made everything. He stands apart in power and majesty and worthiness to be worshipped. We see a similar sentiment to this at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans. And it, it makes sense that somebody making a, a case for the greatness of God would, would call people's attention to these things. This is Roman, Romans 1 verse 20. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made. So they, that being all that would doubt, are without excuse. All that would doubt and then act accordingly. Because <laughs> lack of faith comes with the opposite of obedience to God and his word. <laughs> Always, right? So you see this idea in, in uh, chapter, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 11. It's by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Paul says in Romans, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, they, they are clearly perceived. And so this, we as, as people of God, we, we need to... We need to be ready when our own hearts and minds bring up these kind of questions, but also when, when those that maybe have, have not encountered these truths uh, are having questions like, because it can, it can seem like a very logical thing to ask, you know, wh- why hasn't God just made it obvious that he's real? There are people that have stayed away from any consideration of Christ and his gospel, the truthfulness of God's word, the worthiness of God to be worshipped, they've stayed away from it simply because their perception as it stands of what the world looks like is that if this God was real, and if this God actually loved everybody like, like the Christians say, then wouldn't, he, wouldn't it just be easy for him to make it more obvious that he's that real and that loving and that powerful? Like problem solved, right? Well, the point of... Hebrews 11 verse 3 and Romans 1 20 and others is that he has made it obvious. And the first place to look is creation. And you might be sitting here thinking, okay, well, I'm not sure I get that. The dots aren't necessarily connecting for me that creation kind of screams the reality of this biblical God the way you're saying it does. And and so I would just say, you know, I, I get that, but I would encourage you with this idea Uh, Mufasa gets it. You guys know who Mufasa is? You've seen The Lion King before? Raise your hand if you haven't seen The Lion King. We won't boo you, don't worry. If you've not seen The Lion King. So everybody here has seen... Now raise your hand if you have seen The Lion King. I'm going to see if there's any discrepancy out there. If we just have any non-participants. Okay, so everyone understands what I'm talking about. Mufasa's Simba's daddy, right? And they're standing on the top of Pride Rock, and there's a life lesson going on, right? The circle, you guys remember? So, so the next time you're trying to just remember like the theological concept of, of God being obvious in creation, you just, you just play the circle of life and think about it. It's going to help you. Because what was he saying to Simba? He's saying, you know, yeah, we eat the antelope, but the antelope eat the grass. And then when we die, we become the grass. And here's the thing. I don't, you know, I, I don't blame Mufasa for not knowing this because Mufasa's a lion, but, um, <clears throat> you know, I think, <laughs> I, 
I think Simba's mind would have been blown to hear that plants inhale what we exhale. What? I mean, he didn't even get into all that. He's just talking about decomposition and, and you know, dietary cycles of carnivores and herbivores. And even that is, is pretty cool to think about. Like, hold on, man, this whole thing is self-sustaining and keeps going. Like, it, it screams design. Somebody smart came up with this. Because to believe that out of random chaotic processes, you, you have something this seemingly precisely tuned to continue and perpetuate, it, of course, and I've told you this before, it, it, you can't prove anything when it comes to the origins of all things. You, you can't prove it scientifically or disprove it. But what you do have to do is ask the question, what is most reasonable based on the evidence that I can observe? That's, that's the right approach. Whichever bias you come to the question with, reasonableness is really the, the best we can do until somebody invents a time machine and we can go back to the beginning of all things. But I don't even know that that would work. So I think Simba's mind would have been blown to know that plants inhale what we exhale and vice versa. That's pretty cool. And... You know, really, we don't even have to die to complete the circle, which is pretty cool. Those of you that garden, what do you use primarily to fertilize your garden? The plants in your garden, what do we use for that? Manure. That's kind of a farm term. If you don't know what manure is, that's doo-doo. So we eat stuff, humans, animals, and what comes out the other end is waste, just so happens to be what the plants need to grow and thrive. And then they grow, and we get to eat them again. Now, don't get grossed out, because that's it's the way it's always been, and you're okay, all right? It filters out somehow. I'm not going to get that deep into science today, you know, whatever. Photosynthesis and stuff, there you go. You know, you can go read a science book later if you want to, you know. But, you know, <clears throat> my point is, and, and guys, you know, I'm talking about the circle of life and what Mufasa said, but, but honestly, we, I, could, I could keep you here till well beyond the smell of lunch wafting into this room, talking about all of the reasons, from biology to cosmology, the water cycle, the, uh, the, the shape of our galaxy, the, the, the kind of sun that we have, the distance we have. From, there's so many things we could talk about that when you look at creation and you genuinely are coming with the question, how did this get here? How did we get here? How are we even here contemplating these things at this level? There are many, many, many reasons to come to the conclusion that it is reasonable that there's a good and powerful something, at least, tinkering with stuff. And anyone that would cause you or try to push you into believing that some, that some naturalistic explanation is the only logical explanation, that is not true. It's not true. Now, as I said, there's a lot of other things we could point to in creation. There, there, there is enough there to come to a reasonable faith in a good and powerful creator broadly. But then, God revealed himself specifically to our first parents, to people like Noah and Abraham, Moses and David, and so many others. The, the Red Sea happened, okay? God did incredible things throughout history that are real. And then Jesus came and lived among us and changed the world forever. So let's, all I'm saying is stopping the, the conversation, somebody thinking the conversation stops at, well, if God was real and loving, he would, he would prove it. He would make it obvious. We need to have a longer conversation than that for sure. That's at least what we can, at least can come to that conclusion because we've got creation screaming design, and we've got to deal with the fact that 2,000 years ago, some stuff happened in some little obscure spot in the Middle East, and the world changed forever. Now, you could chalk that up to a bunch of different things, but what is most reasonable to believe? We got pretty good records. There was this guy named Jesus, popped up, started teaching stuff no one had ever heard, started doing stuff no one had ever saw, and then died and rose again. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty, good, pretty good evidence to, to believe that that's actually why uh, we stand where we stand today and why the world looks like it looks today and why there's hope for all mankind. <clears throat> the issue is not a lack of evidence. The issue is a lack of faith. Confident trust in and obedience to God and his word. It's not a lack of evidence. And that's, again, that's, why, that's why Paul 
He anticipates that in Romans 1.20. God's invisible attributes are clear. The, the author of Hebrews anticipates it. 11, chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand the wor- it's by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God. And again, part of the point I'm trying to make to you is the characterization that people of faith have to be stupid, people of faith have to be ignorant, people of faith have to be non-thinking, is, it's just that. It's a caricature. And it's not true. Uh, God's pretty smart, and we're made in his image. And he expects us to think and apply the intelligence he gave us to these things. And that informs an even more robust faith, because faith is not Disney hopefulness, you know, follow your heart, everything will be okay. Well, why? Why are you saying that? Oh, I don't know, just, you know, probably. (laughs) No, no, man, that's not what we're called to here. God's given us far more than that, to be able to stand in a real, genuine, robust faith in him, okay? So that's kind of his introduction to these ideas, and now he's going to begin giving examples. He starts here in verse 4, starts with Abel. (laughs) We get going pretty early, right? Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. We're, we're in Genesis 4. Uh, if you want to look at the reference, this isn't, there's not a lot said about this, but it says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. Uh, and through faith, though he was dead, he still speaks. Uh, let me read you from Genesis 4 what, what is being referenced here. Okay, this, It's not long. Now Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. Okay, So from the firstborn and the best of the flock, Abel brought. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, this is one of those parts in the Bible where God told us less than we wish, so we zero in on it and debate. (laughs) <laughs> which is awesome, okay? So I've heard it said that, okay, so here's the problem with Abel's offering was, you know, uh, it, it had to be an animal sacrifice. And, and if you look forward, you, you'll see that primarily, like sacrifices for atonement and all of that were animal in nature, but there was also Thanksgiving offerings and other things prescribed in the law that were grain and all of that. So I'm not sure, sh- everything I'm doing right now is... We're out in, a little bit in the, in the realm of conjecture, but there's a point of why I'm doing it. So <clears throat> I'm not sure to just say, oh, well, um, Abel should have traded some veggies to his brother and got a lamb and, and sacrificed that, and that would have solved the problem. I, I don't know that the text really supports that as the primary issue. Um, now, if you don't know this story, Cain gets so mad that God had no regard for his offering but did have regard for Abel's offering that he, he kills him, okay? Okay. Uh, that's, and that's a real bummer. What we do see here, though, here's what we do have. Here's what the text gives us. Abel's faith led him to worship God, and the worship of God always included giving from the very beginning. Okay, And as we work through these examples, um, there's, we're seeing some kind of, there's some different subheadings here I think we could give, and, and the first is that Abel worshiped by faith. So faith should lead us to worship. And when we worship, we worship by faith. That's kind of what I think the primary point is of, of the author bringing up Abel for us to consider, okay? So let's, let's think about this in terms of giving. I, I, I emphasized by vocal tone the idea that Abel gave from the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. I think, I think, so who cares what I think, but I'm just telling you, <laughs> that it has more to do with and, and what we're, we see here is that it says, in Hebrews it says, by faith, Abel made his offering. We don't see anything about Cain having faith in what he was doing. Could, can you give God an offering and it not be by faith and not in faith? Of course you can. And since the whole chapter is about faith, I think that probably helps us to zero in on the real point of why this is brought up. Okay? And, and what we see in an offering that is given in faith, here's some features. Abel gave of the firstborn of his flock, okay? And he gave of the fat portions. The first and the best went to God. So what that means is when we're worshiping by faith and we're participating in the part of worshiping God that has to do with giving of the increase that he has given us to steward, 
This idea of, of giving the first and the best to God, maybe you could call that, that's a symptom of giving and worship that is done in faith. That the first and the best, that, that out, of, out of a heart of gratitude, that it's, it's not that I'm like, mm, man, I've got to give God the first and the best. But there's, there's a joy in doing that. Now, <clears throat> I know most of us have heard the verses in 2 Corinthians 9 that say we should not give under compulsion. I know if you've been here any amount of time, you've heard it because I talk about it a lot. Uh, so we shouldn't give under compulsion, we should eat, but what each person decides in their own heart. But I want to read those in context real quick to help us just make sure we're, we're seeing the lesson we should learn. Because this is powerful, we're going to return to this at the end if I don't blow the time totally to pieces here. Um, I might have to shove what I have to say about that into next week, but it's really powerful to me that it says, by faith here, Abel's dead but still speaking. That, that gets my attention. Hold on, what? okay, that's powerful. What does that mean? What's he, what's he saying? What, what should I be gleaning from the couple verses in Genesis that talk about Abel? But this brother by faith is still speaking something that's relevant to me today to understand, Okay. So let me, let me read from 2 Corinthians <clears throat> uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Now I say this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The one who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one must do just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. A lot of people like that verse, but for the wrong reasons. We're going to get into that. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Okay? And there's two things I think we should note here. Again, it says, by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice that was better than Cain's. It was by faith that he did that. Okay? So here's, if our giving requires no trust in God's goodness and promise to provide for us, then it may be lacking faith. If our giving requires no trust in God's goodness and promise to provide for us, it may be lacking faith. To give generously and sacrificially requires faith. And this is what is pleasing to God. Friends, God didn't need animals from Abel or fruits and veggies from Cain. Do you understand that? We're not dealing with some fake God who has temple priests that just want people to bring their gold and their veggies and their meat so that they can live. This is, this is not some fake deal. We're talking about a real God who said, let there be light, and there was light. A real God who ex nihilo out of nothing made everything. He doesn't need your sheep. He doesn't need your veggies. He doesn't need your money. But what he does want from you is faith. And one of the primary ways we can know our faith is really in him is if we trust him in this area. He doesn't need our faith either. He doesn't need our faith. But this is what pleases him. And it shows that we actually love and trust him. Second, just a principle to draw out of this whole able idea and what we read in 2 Corinthians. If you can, if you can do this, if you can give skimpy, half-hearted and faithless offerings to God or no offerings at all. If you can do that and still be cheerful, something is broken that needs to be addressed. Are we chewing on that? Anybody go for the door? I can't see back there. I said what I said. I mean, what do you, what, what's up? Come on up. Because that's the problem. Sometimes we read that. We should not give under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. And it's like, well, this, bless God, this is what I've determined in my heart to do. Some little penance that costs nothing, requires no faith, is half-hearted, is not generous, is not sacrificial. And, and we think because of what 2 Corinthians says, oh, well, that's what I gave cheerfully. Hallelujah. No, man, if, if, you, can, if you can pull it off, if you can give half-hearted, faithless, not generous, not sacrificially to God, if you can conduct your life that way and still walk around with a smile on your face thinking everything's cool, something's broken and needs to be addressed. 
Statements like that are why we always have communion at the end of the service where you can talk to Jesus. Maybe some of you should. Let me also say, there's many of you here who give incredibly generously and sacrificially and clearly faithfully, and I'm very thankful. And, you know, me me coming in hard on that, that's... I'm sure that felt like, it probably felt like me beating on you, but it's really not what it is. That, it's, that's such a key thing to understand. When this author began this treatise on what it means to, to live by faith and how important faith is in the life of a follower of God, he started with the example of Abel and his offering. There's a reason for that. It's really important. And worship of God has always included faith-motivated giving. Okay, You don't have to like that, but you're going to have to come up with some way to argue out of it, and that's going to be pretty tough. So, I don't know. Do what you want with that. Okay, let's move on to Enoch. Maybe you guys will like that better. Enoch rode an invisible elevator to heaven. That's cool. That's not talking about my money. Amen. Okay, verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Uh, again, scant details around this. Uh, Genesis 5 verse 24 says this, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Period. <laughs> no further explanation. We don't have any reason. We don't know exactly how it happened. Just Enoch walked with God, and then he didn't, because God took him. Uh, which is pretty cool. Here, here in verse eleven or chapter eleven, we do get a little. It says, "So it's by faith Enoch was taken up." We don't even see that detail in Genesis, but this writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that's that's what it was. It's by faith Enoch was taken up, so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that bef- that be- that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Okay, a couple of verses are going to say, "Without faith, it's impossible to please God." So the point is clear. Enoch was a man of faith, and it is by faith that he walked with God, right? So Abel worshiped God by faith. Enoch walked with God by faith. Uh, And it's by faith that he pleased God. And that's trying to make much more of a point out of that would, would really probably be reaching beyond what the text give us, because Genesis says five words about it, and we get a little bit more here, but not much. But the bottom line is, based on everything this author knows about how things work between humans and God, we know it's by faith. If, if God was pleased enough with Enoch to say, you know what, bro? Cheat code, you get to skip death. Come on up. We know it's by faith. Because that's how God is pleased. With men and women. Okay? Uh, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. That should catch our attention. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That, I, friends, that word impossible just rings into my ears, down into my heart, and throughout all of my being. That, I, <laughs> I don't think it could be said any better, and I think that should drive us to understand what does it mean for me to have true biblical and genuine faith that is pleasing to God. Because any other way I try to please God is not going to work. By faith, God is pleased, and it is impossible to please Him. And part of what that looks like is coming to God, we must believe that He is. That goes back to that idea of creation, and so starting that He exists. But we know that's not enough, because James said the demons believe in God and they shudder. But also that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That speaks to some of the character of God. So not just that God exists and is powerful, but that God is good, and that those who seek him, he will draw near. This, this begins to point us to the whole mechanism of how we draw near, which has been explained to us thoroughly in the first 10 chapters. The veil was torn, the distance was bridged, because Jesus died, paid the penalty for sin, and now what God... Where, where on Mount Sinai, when the law was given to Moses, the command was, stay back. Now... The invitation is, come close. Something we should never, ever, ever be able 
to be uh, shook out of our gratitude for, no matter what. He continues, verse 7, Noah, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Uh, so So we see that Abel worshiped by faith. We saw that Enoch walked by faith. Noah clearly worked by faith. You know, if you don't know this, estimates vary, but 75 to 100 years it took for Noah to build that ark. That's 75 or 100 years of day in, day out, by faith, building this ark for something that God said is going to happen, and he was surely ridiculed by everyone that came by to see, right? Because he's nowhere near a body of water. And yet, because God told him to, he's building this giant boat. He worked by faith. And he worked by faith because God told just out of obedience to God. There was, God just said this, all the evidence Noah had was this, this is going to happen. That's convicting to me. <laughs> I want that to be all I need to. And God had, there's, there's so many things God has given us in his word that can propel me to work by faith. There's, there's plenty here. I'm not saying there's not specifics. We'll get to that next. I'm talking about Abraham, but this idea of, uh, that, that he condemned the world, there's, there's not universal agreement what that means. Obviously, it was not Noah's decision to flood the earth, um, but there, there is this element in which, and maybe some of you have experienced this, I, I know that I have, there's been certain contexts and environments that I've been in where simply because I refuse to participate in kind of the deeds of unrighteousness going on around me, there, there has been times where people... Have, have felt condemned, and, and the way I knew that is that they, they, then they would end up kind of persecuting me, right? Like, who's this guy think he is? Who's, you know, this, this guy think he's better than us? That, that type of stuff. I've, I've been in environments, I've been in situations, some of it's been family sometimes, you know, so that's extra fun. But uh, sometimes you just, living in obedience to God causes others to feel some type of way. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Maybe you can at least conceptualize it if you haven't experienced it. But I know some of you have. And uh, there, there is a way in which some of that could be what's being discussed here. The, those, at least those that were in the area and, and <clears throat> um, you know, saw and knew about what Noah was doing, um, I'm sure they had opinions about it. And the, the way that Noah walked by faith and in righteousness before God and in faithfulness, uh, I'm sure some people felt condemned. And if they didn't feel condemned uh, when it started raining, they sure knew they were. So... Um, verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. I'm so glad the author of Hebrews, in introducing Abraham's story to this treatise on faith, said what he said the way he said it, because I think it's really helpful. This has been exceedingly helpful for me in my own life to understand how God deals with us, uh, but it's also been really helpful in, in me trying to shepherd and help other people understand how God deals with us. Because um, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes God leads people in the way I think almost all of us would prefer that he do it, which is examples like we see in the book of Acts, where Paul is intending to go to this place, but God, in no uncertain terms, intervenes and says, no, don't go there, go there. It's very specific. Or all throughout the Old Testament, right? Moses, do this specific thing. Have the people walk towards the Red Sea, and then I'll split the Red Sea. Moses, strike the rock, and water will come. Like very specific instructions and and full instructions to deal with the thing that's right in front of you, right? I think most of us, I'm assuming you like care about God's will and want to please him. So those of us that are in that camp that love the Lord... Boy, do I wish the Lord would just draw me a map with very good details. Son, I want you to go from here to here and do this and that. Yes, sir. Not a problem. (laughs) Happy to do it. But sometimes he doesn't do that. And I would say oftentimes he doesn't do that. It's probably because of this pesky faith thing. Oftentimes what he does is what he did to Abraham. Get up, pull up all your stuff, start walking... I'll let you know. 
excuse me, what? That's it? And yet, Abraham is called righteous. And, and that, that to me looks like one of the, the first tests of whether or not this was going to be the guy that God was going to be able to bring a people through his loins that was going to end up bringing the Messiah into the world. That's faith, man. When, when you have just what the Bible says that doesn't specifically maybe address, you've got a decision ahead of you, you've got something you're trying to figure out, I, I need to do this or do this. And all you know is, is just generally what God has said, but you continue to move forward in faith. Or you know... You know, the Word of God is talking about like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, so the one thing I want to encourage you in is this. If you feel like it's just totally dark, God's given no instruction, God's given no leading, that's never true. Because the Word of God is always a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I wish the Word of God was a sun that lit everything so I can see all of the plan all the time. Because sometimes... I'm a little fool and I think I'm God and I'm entitled to the whole plan or I could even understand the whole plan. And I'll stand up here by myself and say that I'm a fool because I know none of you ever have that temptation of thinking that you're God or you deserve the whole plan or that you could even do anything with the whole plan or that if he revealed the whole plan to you right now for your life, every little detail of it, that you wouldn't just melt into a little puddle and give up. Because I'm pretty sure that's what would happen to most of us. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, here you go. Everything I think about the rest of your life, poof, download, right? Matrix style. Click in, right? That's what we, that's what we think we want. I, do, I know I do. I know I sinfully think, Lord, you know, man, if you'd just give me the whole plan, get something done here. Sometimes you're going to say, son, walk that direction. And when you do that, I'll get back with you. <laughs> I don't like that, <laughs> naturally. But as you walk with God longer and you have more and more instances where you are willing to obey him in faith and things like that, and then you see him be faithful, your, your confidence does build. And you get to the point where it's not so scary to move forward a little bit in faith knowing that when you need it, the next move will come. And, and, and this whole idea of God's leading and God's will and all that, it can, it, can, it can really be troubling for a lot of people. There are many people that end up paralyzed and just standing still because they don't feel like they know what God wants them to do. And if I can just offer this to you as a help, this is, this is not me saying do better. This is me saying, man, I know that's really hard, so here's something to think about. You don't ever have to be in that spot. You don't ever have to be in the spot where you feel like, I have to stay frozen here because I don't know what God wants me to do. Because here's what you always have. You can always go back, remember the last thing you know God made clear, and be obedient to that. You've always got that option, and you've always got the Word of God. If you don't know what to do next, do the basic things He's called all of us to do. Love God, love people, make disciples, be a part of God's work in the earth. Just, just do the basic things that He has told all of us to do. And specifics will come. He knows when you need them. And sometimes what's happening is he's helping to grow and cultivate your faith in a way that you need. Maybe you don't know you need it, but he does. He, he wants you to trust him. It's best for you to trust him. Yeah, but it doesn't feel good right now. Oh, I get that, but come on, guys. We, we know that a lot of times the best thing for us doesn't feel good right this moment, don't we? People with kids... It don't feel fun for them to go to bed at bedtime, does it? You know? And yet we do that oftentimes to God. But we, we should probably, you know, <clears throat> quit. <laughs> I'm sure it's frustrating for him and it, it's doing us no good for sure. Okay, that's verse 8. He's going to talk more about Abraham, but let's, let's keep moving here. Uh, verse 9 through, through 16. We'll kind of take those together, all right? <clears throat> this is more about Abraham. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Many commentators pointed out, it's not something I'd necessarily thought of, and if I had, I forgot. You know, the, the promise to Abraham was that there was, there was going to be a land, this land of Canaan that was going to be his inheritance. It's interesting 
Abraham and Sarah ended up dying. The only thing they owned was a little burial plots where they ended up. They, they did not have what you would typically think. It was, there was never this declaration like, okay, Abraham, the land of Canaan is now yours. That, that didn't happen. It happened in a way Abraham would have maybe not thought it was going to happen. It was generations later. God's promise is fulfilled. But it's just, it, this is an interesting example of what it looks like to wait in faith. Abel worshipped in faith. Enoch walked by faith. Noah worked in faith. This, is, this whole idea that of what Abraham, we're talking about with Abraham now is a really good example of what it looks like to wait in faith. Which is, I know, many of our least favorite way to do anything in faith. <laughs> the whole waiting part. Thumbs down, right? But this is what we're being encouraged to, so let's, let's think about it. He was, he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that. That's a reference to Abraham's age. So to that guy, a guy that old, good as dead when it comes to the whole procreation game, right? To him was given as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand in which is by the seashore. And all these, referenced thus far, every one of them, died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. What? Okay, he's... We'll get it. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if, de- if indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Really there, he's, just, he's like, we're not talking about a physical country. Here's what we're talking about. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This points to the whole idea of the, the, the foreshadowing elements of the whole promised land narrative, um, this idea that Abel, or, I'm sorry, uh, Abraham was looking forward to it, Isaac and Jacob were looking forward to it, Sarah was looking forward to it, all of these died in faith. You know, Joseph, next week we're going to see that Joseph died in faith to the degree that he, he knew God was going to fulfill his promise to bring his people into Canaan, and he said, when it happens, take my bones, okay, with you, and they did. So, but what is, what is the real point here? verses 9 through 16, here's here's what I think really we should draw from this. This idea of looking forward to the fulfillment of a promise, of dying in faith without having grabbed the fullness of it, okay, which can really feel like a bummer. And and at one level, I, I I get that it is. But this is the position of every follower of God besides those at the very end of the ages. Every single person that's going to follow God in faith is going to experience what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the rest did, and Sarah, of, of reaching forward to this, ult, this, this ultimate fulfillment of the promise by faith, but not touching it in the time that they live this physical life. The only people that aren't going to experience that is, well, Enoch, I guess, got out of it, but those who are alive at the very end of the age when Jesus returns, every generation before them that follows God is at one level going to have this experience of not touching the fullness. That's why it's talking about a heavenly country, right? The promise to us who by faith trust in the goodness of God, who have our sin atoned for by the grace of God and by trusting in the gospel of Christ, the ultimate promise is a heavenly country with a heavenly king forever. It's us and him forever. That's the fulfillment of the promise we will, so we will, like them, be looking forward in faith to that. We will not touch it in this life. There's a lot of things we may not touch in this life. But God's promises will not fail. Everything he has said he will do, he will do. And sometimes he reaches, he reaches into the, the current and, and does miraculous things that are a foretaste of what's to come, but the fullness and the fulfillment of what God has promised is on the other side of eternity. That's really the point that's being made here. And I think really what the author's trying to do is encourage us to just buckle up for that reality, right? Peter said it a different way, right? You're going to suffer for a little while and then glory. What Peter meant by a little while 
was birthed to death. <laughs> okay. That is a little while, regardless of how old you live to be. Even if you, you make it up into your hundreds, that's still a little while compared to eternity and billions and trillions of years that never end. Okay? All right. So, praise God. That's, that's really what we have going on there. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he, or, from which he also received him back as a type. Okay, a couple things I want to address in this before we kind of unpack the big point of these last couple of verses. All right. First is, you read verse 17, okay? Uh, <clears throat> By faith when he says that offered up Isaac, who he received, who had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. Now, those of you that know your Bible might be thinking, uh, wait a minute, what about Ishmael? Right? Because Abraham had another son. What happened is God promised that he would give Abraham a son through Sarah, his wife, even in their old age, okay? And the, the span of time when it comes to waiting in faith, just, in, you know, we're talking about Abraham waiting in faith for his eternal country and all that. Another way he waited was he was roughly 75 when God said, I'll give you a son. It was 25 years of waiting before Sarah became pregnant and had Isaac, okay? 25 years. And so somewhere in the 25 years, they got nervous. And Sarah started to hatch a plan. Sarah had a younger servant. And, uh, you know, polygamous relationships were, uh, it was just different back then. I don't have time to get in and unpack all that. But the bottom line is, in any sense, this was not a good idea. Because what they were doing was trying to fix the problem their own way. Okay, we don't have a son. I'm getting older. God hasn't done it yet. Why don't, why don't you take Hagar, my servant, and she can bear you a son. And so they do that. Ishmael is born. Okay? So Ishmael, but what God ends up saying is, no, 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 that's not what I said. <laughs> Ishmael is not the son of promise. That's, that's you guys trying to, trying to do my job. And that's, that's not going to work. And so instead of God just chucking the whole thing out and giving up because of the way we always get in the way uh, and the way Abraham and Sarah did, He's gracious and merciful. Isaac is still born. But you might be thinking, what is this only begotten son stuff? Okay, here's... The best I can give you is a maybe. And I, but I think it's a good maybe. All right? The word begotten... You, so if you've read the genealogies in the scripture, you've, like you've heard the word beget. You know, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so. So there's a meaning to this root word of begotten that basically just has to do with the idea of making in, in a procreative sense. You understand what I'm saying? So... Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> Jesse begat David, okay, that basically it means just what you think it means, um, that they have a son, right? But begotten, the root word of begotten in, in Greek is monogenus, so mono, one, genus, kind. And so that word begotten, it, it may just mean that, that, but this, the idea of only begotten, and you hear this also uh, ascribed to Jesus in, in terms of his relationship to the Father. Begat can mean made in the sense of procreate, but it can also be possible that it could be used to say like single or unique in kind. If you break down the Greek word begotten, it's monogenous, like one kind or unique in kind. And so Isaac was a unique one-of-a-kind son, a son of promise, in the same way Jesus later was, okay? And so that's, there's not widespread agreement about that being the case, but looking at the original language and looking what all is said there, the fact that the word begotten is preceded by only, um, I think that's, there's something to what's going on there, and that's the reason why it would be said that way, and the idea that, you know, Ishmael not being included in the conversation, okay? So that's what's going on there. Uh, this whole 17 through 19, particularly 19, that he considered, okay, so, so what happened? Hopefully everyone knows this story. If you don't, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. 
So he marches him up Mount Moriah. Isaac's carrying the wood up a hill to be sacrificed. I mean, it, it drips with foreshadowing and pointing forward to Christ. Um, but they get to the top of the mountain, all the way to the point where Abraham raises the knife. God stops him, provides another sacrifice. Okay, There's a ram caught in the thicket. And so that's, that's what's being referenced here. Uh, and it says, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which he also received him back as a type. So th- I'm, I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Hebrews to give us a little bit more context here because the, the story of Abraham taking Isaac up the hill and God asking Abraham to do that is unsettling just on its face. It really is. But this really helps to kind of understand what's going on. And really we should have caught on to it since this reference is in the middle of a chapter that's all about God being pleased by faith. I mean, it starts to add up when you really think about it, but here's the thing. What that whole thing was about is, Abraham, will you trust me with what would probably be the hardest thing to trust me in possible, which is your son. And here's, so this, verse 19 really brings us back to our definition of faith starting at the beginning. You remember what that was? Confident trust in and obedience to God and his word. Here's, what it, here's how Abraham was able to march his son up Mount Moriah. Here is what the Holy Spirit is telling us through the author of Hebrews. Abraham was so confident in God's word. God said, I'm going to give you descendants like sand on the seashore and stars in the sky through that boy right there. And then the same God came along and said, I want you to take him up the mountain and sacrifice him to me. So Abraham's like, Two plus two doesn't equal four here. Oh, well, God's not going to be unfaithful to his promise. He's saying this now, so I guess he can raise the dead. And it's not like we have a bunch of biblical precedent. This is before Lazarus. This is before Elijah and Elisha are going over to widows' houses, raising sons up. This is all the way back in the beginning. But somehow, Abraham, by faith, reasoned, okay, God said that's going to happen. God's asking me to do this. The only way I can see that working is he must be, he must, he's, must, he's going to raise him up, I guess. Woo! That's faith, buddy. That's confidence in God and obedience to God and his word. That example takes us right back to the beginning and helps us understand what it is that actually pleases God. And why does it please God? Partially, because it's really good for us. We were made for God. We were made to be in a relationship with God. We were made to trust God. We were made to love God. We were made to obey God. And whenever we're not doing those things, it's bad for us. And so this isn't just, oh man, well God's an egomaniac and he just just wants us to to trust him no matter what and and he's, he's needy. No, man. He never needed us. God had perfect love and companionship within the Trinitarian Godhead from eternity past, but there's so much love in him that he decided, even knowing how much trouble we would be, to create us with the end goal of us and him forever. To create us to have an object to pour this overflow of love into for all of eternity. Even after the garden, and even after Cain killing Abel, and even after things getting so wild, there had to be a flood, and on and on and on. Hallelujah. Let me say these, another couple implications out of this. I'm going to say it real quick. I may say more about it next week. Things to think about that come out of this set of verses. I think one other consideration, part of what really got me thinking about that idea that Abel's still speaking after being dead. All through these verses, I I see a really strong nod to the idea of legacy. I think sometimes, man, it's hard for us to walk in in real faith, trust and obedience to God, because we get we get so focused just on like the here and now and the problems here and now. And and sometimes it's it's just it's just kind of this mental arithmetic we do of like, man, this this seems it seems really hard to obey God, trust God, have faith in God. In, in the midst of what I'm going through right now, and, and we, we can start to feel like, man, is it, is it really worth it? And, and part of maybe what would help us stay out of that is to realize, man, God is about legacy. He said, Abel, giving that offering out of, 
out of, uh, out of faith. It, that example is so powerful. Him worshiping by faith in the giving of that offering, that it's still speaking today. And then you think about, man, what if, what if Enoch hadn't been faithful? What if Noah hadn't trusted God by faith? What if Abraham hadn't trusted God by faith? The reverberations of them walking in faith with God down through the generations. And if we, if we would just think about sometimes how what we do and don't do today can matter generations from now, can matter for our kids and their kids and their kids. I mean, that, that is part of why we have such a high emphasis here on discipling the children that are a part of this church. That is among the top of the list of the most important things of why we exist, is to weave the truth of Christ's gospel and a love for Jesus into the kids he's entrusted us to do that with. That's top of the heap, man, when it comes to why we're here and what we're doing. Legacy matters, and I think it's hard sometimes when life's coming at you 100 miles an hour all the time to be thinking about generations down the road, but I'm telling you if, you, if you, if you'll ask God to help you, take a minute and think about that, it can really help. It can really help with the, the fight today, because it does matter. Decisions we make today will have impact years from now. And so I, th- I see that being clear here. The other thing is, I, I just want to offer us all some hope from these examples, because many of us could be sitting here thinking, okay, whew, yeah, all right, sweet. Abel worshiped by faith, and Enoch walked by faith, and Noah worked by faith, and Abraham waited by faith, and I don't do any of those very good, so what's up, <laughs> right? I can see how many of us could, could hear this today and, and leave thinking the bottom line is, well, here's just another way I don't measure up. But that's part of the beauty of the gospel. It's part of a, the beauty of God wanting from us trust and confidence in him and obedience to him. Because if you run through the list, yes, these guys made this chapter 11 hall of faith. These examples of them living by faith are now resonating down to us today And yet what we don't have here are examples of people that did it perfectly. Anyone bother to read the part where Noah got off the ark, got drunk, and got naked? (laughs) Right? What about Abraham being a liar because he's afraid? Saying, no, no, that's not my wife, that's my sister. And how about Sarah who gets honorable mention here and and talks about her trust and the faithfulness of the one who promised. You know how that went at first? She's over there laughing in the tent when God said she was going to have a baby in her old age. She's over there, okay, bud. To the point, like, like is she, God's like, is she laughing? And she's like, no, I didn't laugh. And, he, and, and, and it's funny because the Bible says, no, you laughed. <laughs> I'm like, Woo. Lord, I don't want to have an interaction like that. Like, like he's flat caught me lying right here, you know, to his face. No. And, and yet, here we have these imperfect, broken people listed in the hall of faith. Why? Because of the gospel. Because this whole thing has always been about the fact that why we need to relate to God by faith is because we, we aren't going to be able to just do it on our own. Our trust and confidence has to be in his goodness, in his faithfulness, in his might and power, because all of ours is insufficient. That's why it's grace by faith. That's why we need the gospel. And that's, the gospel is the only way we can read something like we read today and end up encouraged by it instead of discouraged by it. And I praise God that that's true. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I thank you for the whole narrative of scripture. I thank you for the great gift that your word is to us. Thank you uh, for the crown jewel uh, that is your gospel. Lord, please help us uh, to leave here today thinking deeply about why it is faith pleases you. And let us not only leave here thinking about why it is that faith pleases you, but let us leave here with a stirring and a desire to please you by faith. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus encountered a man who yelled out in desperation, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
thank you, Lord, for making sure that was in the scriptures. Because that gives me a place to stand that I know is safe. Because on one hand, Lord, I do trust you. And I have a lot of confidence in you. And, and I, I want to obey you in faith. I want to worship you by faith and walk with you by faith. And I want to work by faith. And, and I want to be patient and wait for you in faith. I, I want to do all those things. And, and sometimes I do. But sometimes I don't. I fall short very often. And I thank you, God, that that doesn't mean you're done with me. I thank you, God, that doesn't mean you're giving up on me. I thank you that there is hope for every single one of us wherever we are at in that journey of being made and conformed and shaped more and more into the image of Christ. I thank you, Lord, that we do have the promise of a city whose foundations are built by God. We do have a promise of that great and glorious day where sin and striving cease. I thank you, Lord, that the promise of that day is coming, but in the meantime, help me, Lord to live in faith and to trust your good word, that what you've said is true. You will do everything you said you would. And that includes not abandoning me. That includes continuing the process you started in each and every one of us. And Lord, help us to give ourselves to that process with joy and participate in whatever way it is you would see fit and lead us to do. We need your help, Lord. We know that. Thank you that we have it because of Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.